and welcome to the June 2009 podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with my good friend, Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. Hey, Matt. Uh, Matt and I are here today to talk to you about books. Uh, we have not had a podcast on good books on The Ordinary Means, and so we thought it was about time we did something like that. Uh, so today we're going to spend our time talking talking to you about some of the things that are sitting on our shelf, some of the paper that is providing fuel for our fire, and should our churches ever catch on fire, uh, they would they would definitely be fuel uh, for that fire, too. Um, Matt, you have good insurance, right? Your church is insured? My understanding is that my library is insured, <laughs> as long as I have a list of a current list of my books, which is unfortunate because I really need to kind of sequester the church administrator here for about a half a day to sit here with me because I have an entire shelf of stacks of books that have not been entered into my database. Have not so yet. officially, I don't own them. Um, yeah, not until they're on the books. list. Not till they're on the list and the list leaves the office do I officially own them. So, yeah, I've got, oh, about 50 books over there on the stack that are not officially registered. Oh, and another 20 or so over there. So, anyways, there's books everywhere. <laughs> we get we get paid to buy books. That's that's pretty much what the pastor, that's what your pastor does. <laughs> Um, As but, the, uh, we have a care t- we have a caretaker at our church, and she's the one who typically gets the mail. And she said to somebody that day, "Pastor Matt gets the best mail." Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know that's just as an encouragement to those listening. Your pastors need not only to buy books, but encourage them to read those books, because uh, the, your pastor needs to be reading broadly. He needs to be reading in all sorts of areas. It's just part of his. Uh, it's part of his growth, and you know. There, I did it again, Matt. I said, "Uh, did you, you did. did you hear that?" And I told you I was going to chastise you severely if you did that. Well, I told you I was going to chastise you severely when we. What you don't know is before we started recording, Matt and I got on online and we said, "Okay, here's the thing: grab a post-it note right now and write on it two letters, U M." And just just post it somewhere. And I mine says stop saying um because I went back and I listened to some former podcasts and I used to, yeah you know Matt I used to be in in the, the theater used to be podcasts I uh, used to be podcasts <laughs> I used to be in theater I should not be saying um I know how to not say um but for some reason the past couple podcasts you and I have slipped into saying. Um, now, it's a subliminal message, Sean. We shouldn't be sharing this with our listeners, but it's a yes, subliminal it message about the ordinary means. Yes, we're not saying um. Oh. We're saying um. We're saying um. Which is <laughs> O-M, ordinary means um. It's a subliminal message, so you'll listen more. So what we're suggesting, really, at the base of this entire series of podcasts is that at the base of the ordinary means is transcendental meditation. Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, um. Hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, you realize that that's the, actually the antithesis of what this podcast is about. So, Matt, if there was one book... Oh, I, I wanted to tell you there that you were mentioning looking at your shelves and not having books cataloged. This is my scary thing, is I have all of my books cataloged. And I went, I looked up in my 
catalog on my computer. I looked up a, several books I was looking for for this specifically for this podcast, and I went to find them on the, my shelf, and they were not there. Which is just it's just a scary thing. You're, you're like, where'd my book go? They're like, um, you know, it's like a baby without his binky. You know, I'm I'm going I'm 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 hyperventilating here. Where's my book? So I sent out an, a a message to our uh, the, the gal who does our bulletin. And we're going to have an announcement in the bulletin. While the pastor is exceedingly happy to loan you his books, he wants you to read his books. He needs to know you have them so that when he needs them, he can hunt you down and find you. So, I don't know if you've experienced that. Um, I I have. uh, There was a time in the past when my library was smaller where I would tell people, please leave me a sticky on my desk so I can record in my library that you have my book. I'm happy for you to have it. However, uh, what has happened over time is that I have uh, just started giving them away and uh, saying, just, just, just enjoy just it. it. I'll buy yeah, another copy. If, yep. I will buy another copy if I want to read it again. Yep. So, Which is anyways. good. We should, we should hold our books it with is. an open hand. We, we should. Um, Wait, now, does this mean that if somebody listens to this podcast and they say, oh, that book you mentioned, I really would love to read that, that they can just stop by and take it from us? <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. You'll, you're going to have to deal with Matt and I on a personal level on, on that issue. Um, and let me tell you, I got somebody you need to deal with. <laughs> We got some friends. We got some friends. You want to talk to? You're gonna want to talk to. So let's talk about books. Yes. If there was one book on the ordinary means, this is a total setup question. You know this. Thanks. If there was one book on the ordinary means that you would want somebody to read, what would that book be? Drumroll, please. From, From embers to a flame. No, you're supposed to say the Bible. Oh, this is, this sorry. Is setup. You I said know. a book. You set me it's up. A, I can't I believe you did I that. Set you up. I said, but now I know what your favorite book is. <laughs> um, and, and here's here's why. Some people um, they'll go, "What? Why wouldn't you? Why, Matt? Why would you not suggest the Bible?" And of course, we would suggest the Bible because what you see is an intentional and faithful use of the ordinary means. In, in fact, in let, me, let me stick in here. We're going to add, at several points in this conversation, some of these books. Uh, there's a couple here I'm looking at on my desk in particular where uh, they're not as scripturally uh, engulfed as they should be. Hmm. And so there's some great books on the ordinary means that really would be even better if they spent more time soaking in the scripture. Hmm. Now, there are also some great books out there, particularly some of the older books. I think of this when I read the Puritans, that these are amazing books. They're so scripturally filled, but there is not a citation anywhere to be found. But it's because these guys are just breathing and speaking out the scripture. It's part of their, la- it's part but- of their ordinary language. It is, um, to our shame, that it's not more of our ordinary language. I think that some of the... I think there are a number of books that have been written more recently that have not positioned themselves, if you will, in the reading marketplace as 
sort of the resurgence of ordinary means. So uh, books that, that would be uh, would be by our friends Lake Duncan and Terry Johnson, and there's excellent books we could suggest to you. I'm sure they're in Sean's stack there that he's going to read off here in a little bit. Um, those books are positioned specifically to encourage you um, in the use, the usefulness, the faithfulness of the ordinary means. One of the reasons that I like uh, Harry Reader's book, From Embers to a Flame, is that he's an ordinary means guy. Um, but what he does is he tells you here's how you want to here's how you want to intentionally put the ordinary means to work in your church. Here's the end for which you want to use the ordinary means. Um, and he's as ordinary means as anybody could ever be. Very enthusiastic about it, actually. Um, and it uh, to me is a good nexus of what I'm trying to do in terms of ministry, which is faithfulness and intentionality. Matt, do you want to say anything about the the revitalization aspect of that that work? Yeah, I mean, statistics show that eighty um, percent of American churches are plateaued or declining. Uh, so what that means is that a great and vast majority of the churches in America are not uh, healthy in the sense of um, vibrant spiritually, reaching out with the gospel in such a way that the grace of God is coming to people and they're being converted. Um, now, there could be a lot of reasons for that. Um, and the whole, if you will, the whole business of uh, revitalization is uh, approaching ministry in those churches, in those 80% of churches in America, um, and looking at it saying, what might not be right here? What, what needs to be tweaked scripturally uh, so that this church uh, embodies all that the scripture has to say about what a church should be? And that's the process of revitalization, is re-looking at God's priorities, re-looking at God's ways, re-looking at what God calls us to as a church, um, and seeking um, to recapture um, what biblical ministry looks like. And there's no axe to grind in From Embers to a Flame. Uh, there's, you, you'll read through it and you'll go, there are people all across the spectrum in terms of um, worship style, in terms of preaching uh, emphases, even the form of preaching that you would take. There are suggestions and reasons why you might adopt certain things. Um, but really, Harry's passion is that people look at their church uh, at, the, at the meta picture level and say, why are we here? What is it that we're asking God to do? And how are we asking him to do it through what through what means? Um, and I found it eminently helpful. It's sort of a window of entry into uh, a lot of other a lot of other issues without losing um, the faithfulness aspect of using the ordinary means. So it's a book that pushes you to scriptural preaching, um, towards abundant prayer, towards an emphasis on the Great Commission, um, all the things that anybody who would listen to this podcast would be extraordinarily enthusiastic about. Um, this book does. There are a lot of books out there on revitalizing. <clears throat> excuse me, on revitalizing your church, on uh, making your church healthy, on strengthening your church. Um, I think we're beyond the era of the church growth book. Maybe mm-hmm. not. Maybe not. I think they still exist in in well, large measure. Well, even the forty days of purpose thing that was just a couple of years ago. I think showed us that we're actually not past that yet. Yeah, I think we st- we still want 
we still want a formula instead of a thoughtful approach that's intentional for the community in which we live. We want- it, frankly, it's a lot harder. It's we- a lot harder to really think through where we live, the people who are around us, um, where our people are, how they need the gospel ministered to them, uh, and how the community needs the gospel ministered to it. Um, and that's that's all what I capture up in intentionality. I'm just preaching through preaching through Acts right now. I'm preaching Acts chapter 14 this week, and the, it's a stunning contrast the way that Paul deals with a synagogue in Iconium, uh, and he deals uh, next. Um, I think it's Lystra. I don't have the text right in front of me, but I think it's Lystra that he goes to. That's rank pagans where nobody knows Jesus. Nobody's got any scriptural background at all. In fact, they try and sacrifice to them, not even recognizing the creator-creature distinction. And the way that Paul ministers there, um, at least in the beginning, is entirely differently, um, just like when he's in Athens. And my one of my great passions that you hear in this podcast is that we not only get faithful in terms of the means that we use, but we get intentional in the way that we use those means, that we follow Paul in the way that he ministered in that we get to know the people that we're trying to minister to, we realize where they are, and we use the ordinary means in a way that they can that that begins with where they are and takes them to where Jesus would have them be. And I think that's a hard part of revitalization because it's going back and it's rethinking. We're doing this right now with our, our typical VBS because what we found is that where our VBS at our church is typically uh, a drop-off spot for kids for, from other churches because their moms want to get them out of the hair, out of their hair for the summer, or it ends up being um, it, it, either babysitting for the community or kids from other churches who already know Jesus. And that's not really that's not doing what we think Jesus calls us to, which is to make disciples. We want to see people actually come here and sit under the preaching of the word and things like that. And so we're we're trying to think through what. What does the community perceive its needs are, and what's a beginning point for us? And so we're going further back. We're doing something. We're having our kids come and learn how to sing, uh, but they're coming to sing at a church, and we're to tell them there's a creator that made them, that made them to sing. Um, and that's so we're trying to be more intentional about a way that we could minister to kids in the summer. That's just one example of what we're trying to do. No idea if it'll work, but it's a way of taking the ordinary means preaching of the gospel that begins with God the Creator and apply it in, um, you know, postmodern city. Matt, you bring up a uh, you bring up the the point that we need to uh, use the ordinary means as as a means. <laughs> uh, we've just I would direct you if you're listening to this podcast uh, for the first time, or if you've not listened to the last several podcasts that we did on uh, gospel dependence, mm. uh, I would I would urge you to listen to those, because I think that is what Matt is getting at here, and I would agree that using what Matt is calling using the ordinary means intentionally is, is urging people to see them as the ways that we express our dependence on God, not as works that we do. I was just uh, talking with a friend uh, earlier today, and one of the points we were talking about obedience, and one of the points that was brought up was the fact that obedience, apart from faith, is sin. Mm. 
And so we want to be very careful. In fact, if you just to put it a little bit more powerfully, obedience, the kind of obedience that is acceptable to God, uh, because it is oh, it is in Christ, is obedience that is not a work, but an act of faith. Now, tell me how you distinguish those two, and you're a better man than I, <laughs> because I cannot. That is a that is a fine line that we walk, and yet that is the gospel. Mm. The gospel is that our obedience is acceptable not because we're doing the right things, not because we stopped doing the wrong things and now we're doing the things Jesus wants us to do. The gospel is everything you do is wrong, but by faith it is made acceptable through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who Mm -hmm. is your complete righteousness. It's his righteousness that is yours. So it's, it's, when we're talking about the ordinary means, being intentional with them, we're saying we want, we want them to be matters of faith. We want them to be acts of faith in the living God, our Creator. Here's the point. Our trust is going to be, our hope, our dreams, our aspirations rest on something of how we think God's going to work. And is it going to be because we're clever? Um, you know, our church has got these cute little phrases that we use to help crystallize our ministry. Worship God, live in community, serve our world. Why do we do that? It's a way for us to express biblically why we think God's put our church here in this community at this time. Is our hope in those little three phrases? No. Our hope is that we do a biblical ministry here. Uh, and that by the use of the ordinary means in people's lives, both inside the church and outside the church, that God will use us. So it's where's your hope? That's what you got to answer the question. What are we hoping in? And our point today is that we give you some of the resources so that you can be thinking intentionally in that direction. Resources that are going to point you back to your hope. Uh, resources that are going to say, this is, this is Christ. This is his ordinary means. Uh, something you brought up just a little bit, a little while ago. We've, uh, we've had some technical difficulties here this morning, um, but something you brought up a moment ago, Matt, was that in this, pro- in these revitalization books, we want books that are uh, pointing us back to the means of Christ, and that's going to be that's going to make that's not going to be a quick fix. You were talking about the 40 days of purpose and things like that. Where I think churches are looking for a quick fix. We have this problem or that problem. We're not living in community. We're not living, we're not looking like we think our church should be looking. And so give us a quick fix. Now, I don't think either Matt or I are going to tell you that there isn't benefit in those quick fix books. But I think the key to reading them, reading any book on church life, and and in reading any of the books that we mentioned to you today, because at the end of the day, they are books written by men, Uh, they're not the Word of God, Uh, but at the end of the day, the key to reading these books is looking for the eternal, and letting the worldly wisdom just sort of slough off to the side. 
they're going to have both. Every book is going to ha- have a mix of worldly wisdom and godly, biblical, biblically sound wisdom. You're going to want to look for the eternal. Look for the things that tell you to do the hard things. Like, stick with your ministry for years and years and years. Just right. keep preaching, just keep praying, keep administering the sacraments, keep... Uh, bringing these things to your people in in the whole counsel of God and do that over the course of years and years and years and you're going to say well that's not you know that how's that going to fix anything well that's our problem and the, the way God has set us up is that we need discipleship we need sanctification and sanctification doesn't come overnight there's the only quick quick fix is glorification <laughs> exactly <laughs> and and we don't get that in this life so no. this life is is that process of God developing us, of God reforming us, if I can use the word that way, of God revitalizing us, of God transforming us into the image of his Son. And hopefully these resources can help you to do that. Now, I don't know about your list, Matt. Are you prepared? I've got on my sheet here, I've got it divided up by, by word, sacrament, and prayer. Can we talk about them individually? Sure. Okay, let's let's begin to do that. You mentioned your favorite book. Yeah, I have two favorite books on preaching. Um, if we want to start with the word, yeah. um, let me mention. Um, maybe we can do it this way, Sean. Is um, uh, maybe personal means of the use, and then corporate means of the use. Um, I've been uh, in terms of personal means of the use, and here's why I, I, I think it's important that we think about it this way. I think as ministers, we do we can do a very good job of saying, here's what church ministry ought to be about. Here's, you know, ordinary means of grace, yeah, let's go, let's do it. But if it's not something that we embody in our own lives personally, it will ring hollow, because it's not actually who we are. So I think that an ordinary means ministry flows from an ordinary means worshiper, the pastor, the elders, the deacons, the leaders in the church, that they are ones who look both corporately and privately um, to the ordinary means for their own growth. Well, absolutely. So that when it's going on in worship, it's not a foreign thing, it's a familiar thing. So one of those uh, authors that I think is uh, one of the modern authors that I think is most helpful in that is John Piper. Uh, I'm reading for the first time right now, Desiring God, and really, really enjoying it. Um, And I think that Piper has put helpfully, I think, um, why particularly the scriptures in prayer. Of course, we don't do the sacraments privately. We only do those corporately. But the scriptures in prayer, what role do they have in my uh, in my personal life, what, what's, wh- wh- why should they have a very present role in my personal life as well as in the life of the church? And his concept of it, which I think is right, is they help me delight in God. They help me, uh, they show me how much I need to rely on him. They're both ways of what Sean mentioned earlier, uh, is our use of the means demonstrates our dependence. That when I read the Bible, this is what God was teaching me just yesterday as I was pondering why I don't hunger to read the scriptures more. And Sean knows this. We've been friends for many, many years, and he's always been far better at reading the scriptures than I have. But God's teaching me this. Why don't I hunger for the scriptures? Well, to be honest with you, uh, I think I'm pretty wise. Thank you. Hmm. That's, that is the uh, the enemy, isn't it? 
the best books, Matt, are going to be the books that show us the enemy, are going to be the books that open our eyes to see our own blindness and to see uh, how much we need to be trusting in Christ for everything. Absolutely. So you, th- you said two books. So, so um, yeah, so I think that in terms of, um, personally, when I look at the ministry of the Word, Desiring God has been one of the most helpful things for thinking, for helping me through that. In terms of the ministry of the Word, corporately, my ministering of the Word to people, um, two books in terms of preaching that are my uh, favorite. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Preaching and Preachers. Excellent um, book. Excellent and book. And... I think that someone who picks up an emphasis in Lloyd-Jones, um, one that made a lot of Reformed people, frankly, uncomfortable, this concept of unction, um, Arturo G. Azurdia III. I'll say that again. The book is called Spirit-Empowered Preaching, and it's written by Arturo Azurdia, A-Z-U-R-D-I-A. Was that, a D, uh, was that book a D-Min project at Westminster? It was. It was a D-Min project at Westminster West under the supervision of um, uh, Joey Piper, who's the president of Greenville Seminary. And it came recommended from him as his favorite book on preaching. And I said, well, if this is Joey Piper's favorite book on preaching, I need to read this. Hmm. And it is an excellent, excellent book um, because it it puts in scriptural relief – um, Lloyd Jones's concept of of unction that he experienced, and people are uncomfortable with that. They're uncomfortable with some aspects of Lloyd Jones's ministry, and we can debate that another time. But what Azernia does very helpfully is root scripturally uh, the idea that there is a distinct ministry of the Holy Spirit that goes on in preaching, and that we ought to yearn for it and seek for it. Well, you mentioned expect. You mentioned just a minute ago, Matt, the, uh, that a pastor needs to be an ordinary means man. He needs to be a dependent man. Mm-hmm. And so often we go into the pulpit with what we have done. This, mm. is, this is the sermon I have prepared. And mm. so much of our ministry is based in who we are so that if, if people don't get it, or people don't like it, or people aren't appreciative of the ministry of the Word, it's all about me. And and that's why so often pastors deal with depression, hmm. is because, just like you were saying a minute ago, the enemy comes in, and, and the enemy is me. <laughs> the enemy is my yeah. own selfishness and, and pride and, and focus on, on me, me, me. I'm the me monster. And so, yeah. what we, what you're, what you're saying, this, this talk, what you're talking about, this concept of unction, the concept that it's not about me, it's how the Spirit uses my words that, though they've been adequately prepared, are not enough to change a soul. Mm. Only the ordinary means of grace, as grace comes through, through an, a simple man, an ordinary man preaching, will people be changed. Absolutely. And so, this is a so very good, good one. It's a good it's a, it's a very, very good dependent point. work. Yes. 
I, uh, one more one more thing before you go on to your books on, on Ministry of the Word that yeah. you like. Um, very recently recommended, the most recent of our Getting Together Twin Lakes uh, Fellowship, which you heard about last month and you hear about, we usually publish one of the lectures. We did Doug Kelly's lecture last month on our podcast. Um, one of the books recommended by, by Lake, our friend Lake Duncan uh, at Twin Lakes this year was a book by J.I. Packer called Truth and Power, The Place of Scripture in the Christian Life. And he said this one single chapter... This was interesting. Somebody that uh, Sean and I have learned an enormous amount from. Chapter 5 of this book is called Mouthpiece for God, Preaching in the Bible. Uh, Lig said, reading these slim 20 pages completely changed his view of preaching and crystallized it as the preacher is a mouthpiece uh, for God. And I think we need that um, sobering uh, of how crucial... Uh, this thing of preaching is. If we treat it as something that's breezy and easy, that is what people will take away about God and His Word. And if we have a joyful uh, sobriety, uh, Piper calls it a blood earnestness, uh, about us in the way we go about preaching, um, it's... Um, I was going to use a word, and then I, I hesitated. I'll use it. Um, captivating by the Spirit. Not captivating because there's this passionate man, and we all like passionate people, and so we're attracted to people that are having a good time and, and are captivating because their personalities are so wonderful. Not captivated in the way that the world talks about it. But captivated because here is the word that the Holy Spirit inspired being spoken by a man whom the Holy Spirit has gifted and filled, even specially on that day of preaching, for that moment of preaching. That's a Zerdia's point. To do something that is impossible anywhere else. That's the kind of thing we're talking about in terms of an ordinary means use ordinary means use of the word in preaching is that we think it's something that is duplicatable nowhere else because the Holy Spirit has set it up that way. Which takes us to Edwards and the fact that Edwards argued that the change in us actually occurs during the preaching. Mm. You know, I think... And the Westminster Standards talk about that, that the preaching yeah, oh, of the yeah. word is the, ordinary, is, is the way... The typical way, 155 in the larger catechism, is the typical way um, that sinners are converted and saints are sanctified. And that we ought to have an expectation of this. Now, uh, Rob Rayburn makes the point, and it's a good one, which is that by percentage, of course, that's not always been the case. If we look at the Christians who, people who've become Christians, many of them have become Christians through the Christian home. They've become through personal witness and evangelism, where people come into church sometimes before they know Christ, sometimes after. I don't think we want to discount that, either of those at all, the virtue of the Christian home uh, for the evangelization of the children, as well as those outside the community um, of faith. Or personal witness. We don't want to diminish either of those. But we do. what we don't want to lose is this is a place where the gospel goes forth with power. And we ought to expect that it would yearn to have unbelievers there. Preach in such a way that, it, that we anticipate and expect that they'll be there. This is what I think Tim Keller does exceptionally well among modern preachers. Um, administer the gospel in such a way that both 
believers and unbelievers are um, spoken to because the gospel brings them both together at what their great need is. Matt, you had mentioned books in two categories, uh, preaching and then the reception of preaching. Mm. Did you have a book in the in that second category? Yeah, I think that uh, Unmasked in Terms of the Reception of Preaching um, is Adam's book, A Consumer's Guide to Preaching. Yes, I've got that. I have that here. Yeah. Um, it's it's, well, it's only the only book of its kind. It's, it, it's the only one of its kind. Um, I once did a two-sermon series in my congregation in Pennsylvania. I'm going to open up my database here just to see... Um, I don't think that I've got my library database. I don't think I have another book uh, like that. I don't. But, I don't uh, know of another book that is written to. Essentially, the the focus of this book by Adams is how how do I, as the person sitting in the pew, how do I respond to the preaching? Mm. And so there's just there just isn't, and that book is hard to find. I don't. I think it may have just come back into print. Uh, it, it may have. I'm not going to jump on the internet here because it'll break down our connection. But I'm just looking under um, preaching in my list here in my database just to see if there's something else. Um, okay. As you're as you're looking for that, let me just add a couple things. One other book that's a classic on preaching is uh, Stotts, John Stotts, Between Two Worlds. Very very mm-hmm. helpful. I just reread it last year. And enjoyed it immensely. Uh, and I don't think it would be wrong for your average person in the pew to read these books. The only danger would be the danger of knowing enough to be dangerous, uh, and sort of sitting. Uh, if if your if your temperament is such that you would read a book on preaching so as to judge your pastor, you're probably not the type of person that needs to read a book on preaching. But mm-hmm. if your temperament is such that you want to gain from the Word of God, and you see your pastor as, as a weak man who, the, who God is using powerfully, then what a book like that can do is it can, it can tell you how you can be praying for, mm, your, pastor. for your pastor, and, mm-hmm. and it can help you to see what your pastor is trying to do so that you can better receive what your pastor is doing. But I think, honestly, my I don't think there is a if I had to recommend one book on preaching, I don't think I could do it, and here's why. I think both the preacher and and the recipient of preaching that need need to listen to and read good sermons. Great point. I, I just don't think that there's a book that tells you I, I know for pastors, they're always looking for some key to preparation, some mm-hmm. key to getting to the main point. And so often pastors finish preaching a sermon and they go, okay, now that I finished preaching it, I'm ready to preach it because mm-hmm. they've had the opportunity to preach to themselves. Right. So I just, I don't think there's, there's great books, but the key is listening to and reading good sermons. And I guarantee you, if you are sitting in the pews of a church every week, if you are disciplining yourself to read and listen to good sermons and to attend to the word of your pastor, I have no doubt you're going to be growing in the Lord. Mm Mm-hmm.
Yep. That's good. Now, we probably shouldn't, before we move on from yeah. preaching books, uh, fail to mention two more. Um, Christ Center Preaching by Brian Chappell. Uh, for some of you who are already preachers, it will be, uh, my copy is actually out right now uh, on loan. Um, it, for some of you who are already preachers, some of it will seem very pedantic because it's a beginning manual. However, um, about midway through the book, there are two chapters that are uh, should be read by every pastor in America, in my opinion, which is how to preach Christ um, in the midst of a sermon for both believers and unbelievers. And it's essential reading uh, because um, Chapel does is really quite the master at this, and I think it's very, 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 very helpful. Um, and in terms of the big picture of preaching and how to bring all the scriptures to bear in a sermon. Um, our good friend Dennis Johnson at Westminster Seminary in California um, has picked up the work of Edmund Clowney and has continued it um, in his book on preaching, uh, Him We Proclaim. Well, um, you know what we need to recommend on that note, Matt, is go to sermonaudio.com and uh, search for, Ed, for Edmund Clowney. Mm. All of his stuff, they've, they've, been, they've been stockpiling uh, his stuff while he was alive, on to not that he's preached since his passing, but his um, all of his sermons are there on sermon audio, and you need to listen to him. If that is that is where I think I I don't know about you. Did you get that from him, Matt? You came a year after I did. I know. For I had me, one class with Clowney. Okay. And I made the mistake of not preaching Christ in a sermon in his class. And he was very kind about it. <laughs> I, I heard him do a little, just a little module at some conference the first year I was in seminary. And it completely transformed the way that I look at scripture. Yeah. So Edmund Clowney and, and the work that Dennis is doing in continuing uh, Clowney's work both are vital. What's the name of Dennis's book? I think it's uh, Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim, that's correct. Um, I'm, um, I'm looking for it on the shelf here to make sure that that title is right, um, but I, I believe that you that's are. It. Yeah, you're right. You're, you are right. I just don't have it sitting uh, right in front of me, which may be yet another one of those books that has disappeared off of my shelf, and uh, I'm wondering where it went. Let's see, what else do we need to talk about? So we've talked about preaching, both sitting under it, um, getting it Getting it into you, getting the word of God into you. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a with a controversial one here. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a new book called Tell It Slant, and what it is is it's a a, a looking at the language of Jesus in his stories and in his prayers and how Jesus talked about things. And it seems to me that if we are going to be speaking for Jesus. We need to be speaking about the world in the ways that Jesus speaks about the world. And this is where this book is very, very helpful, is it helps us to see the the forms that Jesus' stories take and so can can influence our preaching in that way. Have you Are you in familiar with that book? Us, I'm not, but you've made me intrigued. Yeah. Um, in terms of helping us follow that aspect of Jesus' ministry where he grabbed onto um, people's world and spoke to them in a way that that, that um, 
it, well, it spoke, spoke to, to them in a way that, that they could grab to onto because he'd taken account of the reality of the place that they lived. So, for example, give us an example of how you would um, preaching slant uh, in a sermon. Well, I think the, the best example is Spurgeon. Okay. Because now, in your preaching right now, in my preaching right now, how would I, how would I preach it slant? Well, I'll give you an example. I'm looking at my congregation, and I know in my congregation that there are uh, that there are Pharisees and Sadducees there. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to want to uh, when I preach obedience, I'm going to want to preach obedience in such a way that I'm not just giving those Pharisees and Sadducees another work, that I'm not preaching in such a way that I'm telling those Pharisees and Sadducees, see, you are pretty good because you do the right things. And so I might actually say something like this. For some of you, obedience is sin. Because Which I, is very arresting. Yeah, because I want them, I want, I want to pull the Pharisee outside of his box, and that's what Jesus is constantly doing, is he's turning the question back on them, and he's saying, now ask yourself, uh, is, is God even hearing my prayers? You know, you Pharisees, you're praying all the time. Does God even care? To hear you. To hear yeah. you, yeah. Yep, yep. That's good. So, so that would be. I think that would be an example. So, so Peterson um, is is very helpful on that. I mention. I say it's controversial because he, you know, he pushes some boundaries, and uh, you're not going to be comfortable with everything he says. But he is not afraid to 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 challenge our boundaries. And for, with and for that he's not afraid to do what Jesus did, <laughs> and right. for that I find him very very helpful. Another fellow that I've not read a lot of, but I'm increasingly becoming impressed with him is Paul Miller. Have you read mm-hmm. his Love Walked Among Us? I have not, although it's it should be higher up on my list because that's uh, something that we've been emphasizing. Someone else drew my attention to that book again recently. It's here somewhere. I'm not quite sure where in all the stacks and shelves of books. I just began his new book, A Praying Life, mm-hmm. and I found that. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the in the prayer section. But Love Walked Among Us, it seems to me, is along the lines of Peterson's Tell It Slant. It's okay. what, do, what does it look like to, to really love? So instead of focusing on the words, he's focusing on the actions. Hmm. I would relate those two books. Now, I may be completely wrong, and if I'm completely wrong, just correct me in the blog, on the blog, but that is that is my impression of the relationship between those two books. So, mm. so that's preaching. Uh, we've got two other categories. We've got the sacraments. We've got prayer. I have a third pile here, and this is actually the – or a fourth pile, rather, and this is actually the largest pile on my desk, and that's general books mm-hmm. speaking to the issue of the ordinary means. Mm-hmm. And let me just let me just run down those books real quick because I don't think you have a list like this. Although some of yours may fit in this list, okay. let me run down these and then you you sort of fill in uh, as you would agree, disagree if you've read it or not. Uh, the first one I've got here is Worship by the Book, edited by Carson, mm-hmm. which brings together three three different men. From well, really four if you can't Carson and I, I personally I think that book is worth the introduction Carson's introduction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is worth the price of the book mm-hmm. 
Yep. But that that asks the question: How do we do the ordinary means in worship? Right. So you're going to find probably the vast majority of the books that are addressing ordinary means issues are going to be books on worship. So that book, uh, Worship by the Book by Carson. Uh, also, this is a little bit more, Carson as editor. Yeah, D. A. Carson. Uh, three other contributors. Yeah. And then uh, this is more of a textbook, but very very helpful. Um, particularly, there's a couple books I have here that are going to be more for our history buffs, going to be for people who want to get a sense of uh, what's been done historically in worship, how are the ordinary means something, uh, because I think to be, really become committed to the ordinary means, you have to come to the conclusion that this is what the church has always done. Right, that I'm, not, that I'm uh, fitting in with a good biblical stream. Yes, yeah. And so there, there are a number of books that do that. Anything by uh, Hughes Oliphant Old. Mm-hmm. He has a series on the worship of the Christian church that goes through preaching in all of history, from the beginning of time up through modern times. It is a massive uh, collection. I want to say there's seven or eight volumes now. Um, this is going to be a little bit more heady, but this is something that uh, particularly pastors are going to want to get a hold of. A great book to as an introduction to old is his book, Worship. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a classic textbook on what Reformed worship looks like, what ordinary means worship looks like. Um, another one from the historical trend is a book that you and I just got a copy of to review, and that's uh, Scott Clark's book, Recovering mm-hmm. the Reformed Confession. Right. And I think Helpful. the... Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think what Scott's helpful is just to, to distinguish us as Reformed people from broadly uh, evangelicalism or revivalism, which has been a passion of his for some years. Um, I think that he, it's, it's a helpful book, just in a review sense, it's a helpful book for alerting us to some of the things that are out there that don't fit the historical stream in, in which we f- – in in which we draw our history from, um, helpful in terms of, of knowing what does it mean to be a confessional church and the virtues of that versus reinventing it from scratch uh, every generation. Um, helpful for a good view of the Lord's Day. Um, so helpful in a lot of things. I think that one thing that it, it torques me a little bit about this book is that um, – when I look at the Bible, I can't find anything that tells me that I ought to hold being reformed as a great thing. So Scott and I differ, and it's a difference among brothers, that my greatest identity is not with being reformed but being biblical. Now, if we define that being biblical as being reformed, then maybe we're saying the same thing. Um, but I don't think that our calling ever is to restore a glory day. Um, I think that's actually was one of Israel's problems was they tried to restore former glory. And you can just trace that back in the Old Testament. Hey, it was better in Egypt. Um, but I think that our, the, what God calls us to in each generation is um, Semper Reformanda, that we're always reforming. So not only that we know our history, and that's what Scott's turned our attention to, what is our history? Let's build on our history and not lose what's the best of it. And in that sense, it's very, very helpful book. Um, but also, what... How should we be living out our historical theology and practice and piety now in yes. ministry? Yes. Um, and I think that that's perhaps a weak point here, but it may also not have been Scott's goal. So it's hard to critique a book for something that wasn't the goal. Well, Scott is good at, a, at 
seeing the errors of pietism. Mm-hmm. And I think that is where, uh, where there's great benefit from, uh, from reading Scott's book. Just in terms of your point you just made, I wanted to read you from the epilogue of this book. He says, this essay has been somewhat uh, retrospective and accordingly it is bound to seem conservative mm-hmm. and to some perhaps even regressive. The argument of this book, he says, is not conservative, at least not as that adjective is usually employed. I have little interest in preserving the status quo in the conservative Reformed churches, if only because we are often conserving the wrong things. Mm. The argument of this book is not conservative, but radical, inasmuch as it is a call for Reformed Christians to return to their confessional roots. And I think Scott sees that as a modern return. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not a return apart from the world in which we live, but, the, but, a, but a real strength, and Kim Riddlebarger makes this point in his recommendation of this book, is that uh, Scott, he says, Dr. Clark is a brave man. He's not afraid to remind us of many aspects of our historic Reformed confessions that we either take for granted or should find at odds with our current praxis. So there are many ways in this book that Scott's saying, you call yourself Reformed, but but the confession says this and you're doing another. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's where he is helpful. He right. is he's a good uh, he's a good critic of culture. He's a good critic yep. of the of the church and helping us to open our eyes to see our blind spots. Um, I think if I was to give it, you gave it one weakness. If I was to give it one weakness, it would be a weakness that I see in most historical theologians, and that okay. is uh, that is that because uh, I, I saw this in um, reverence with reverence and awe. Mm-hmm. I had the same argument for that book. There's very little scripture. Mm. How do you write a historical theology without constantly going back to the scripture? Now, I realize he's he's not writing a systematic theology. Um, he's writing uh, he's writing a historical theology, right. but there is there is and it, he he does mention scriptures throughout the throughout the book. I'm not don't get me wrong. But there's not that emphasis, and I think that what that does for these kinds of books that come out of historical theology is it weakens them when they could be they could be much much stronger because I think we would all agree the power is in the Word of God mm-hmm. and tying the tying the confession to the scriptures that are at the root of the confession. The confession is merely the leaves. The, right. the scriptures are the root, and uh, this is this is one weakness, and this isn't just a weakness in Scott's work. This is a weakness I see throughout historical theology: is there's not a a deep uh, rooting in the scriptures that are behind the confession. They they almost take the confession for granted, mm-hmm. and so that I mean that would be my one my one critique. But that is uh, not a critique that should stop you from reading a book like this. Uh, you know, Ligon is very enthusiastic about this book. Uh, he recommended it at Twin Lakes. Mm-hmm. And um, now, it's not an easy-to-read book. No. It'll um, be over the head of many, many people, I would yeah, think. So this is not something yeah. that... But this is something that a pastor could pick up and by reading it, be very... be helped in how to then 
and then find ways to get this information into his congregation. Really, it gives you a self consciousness as to what um, what it means to be reformed, mm-hmm. um, and and why that that is not something to be resisted but embraced. Yeah, another book that comes to mind, and this is this is a big book, but this is a must-have book. If you do not own this book, it was it, if it was not given to you free in the past three years, because they've been handing this book out for a while, you need to get a copy of this book. Give Praise to God, A Vision for Reforming Worship. And if, uh, if you don't have a copy of it, uh, this is one you can actually stop by my office. I have an extra copy that I will give you. There you go. There you go. And I will, if you want to stop by, I'll give you my copy. This is a collection of articles, and it is a marvelous collection of articles. It is a marvelous collection of articles. There's no doubt about it. In fact, if I were to recommend one book on the ordinary means that was both readable and inspiring, I think that that would probably be the one. Mm -hmm. Uh, A couple other books I've got sitting here. Uh, R.C. Sproul's A Taste of Heaven is a great little, it's just a little book, but it's a great little book on the ordinary means. I wasn't even aware of that book. Yeah. Glad you told me about it. Yeah, well, it's combining, he's he's thought about this a lot, he's done a number of uh, audio tapes on the sacraments and prayer and worship, and mm-hmm. this is compiling a lot of that into a little book. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's a very beneficial book. Um, Devers, The Deliberate Church. Mm-hmm. So, Actually, anything by Dever. I was going to mention the nine yeah, marks. Yeah, nine marks. But just in terms of the this idea of church health via the ordinary means. Yeah. Um, anything that you would read by Dever would be very, very helpful. But these two in particular, the deliberate church and the nine marks of a healthy church. No matter any other books coming to your mind in this category of general books, people need to be aware of. Of the in terms of the broadest picture, that's probably a good representative taste. If you had those and you sort of embodied those, um, I think that in terms of the biggest picture, those are those are good and helpful. Well, now, something we're not mentioning a lot of here, and we need to, is is the Puritans. Mm. And I would I would recommend going, uh, you know, going back any of the Puritan paperbacks would be any one of them would be an excellent start. In, in the Puritans and the Ordinary Means, because every Puritan in every sermon is talking about the Ordinary Means. I know that's a very, that's a very broad statement, but any of those, in fact, um, one that was very, very helpful to me recently was the Bruised Reed by, who did Mark Dever do his dissertation on? Sibs. Sibs. The Bruised Reed. Thomas Sibbs, Robert, Richard Sibbs, Richard Sibbs, there it is. They all had, they, why were Puritans, they were all named, they all had the same names, like Richard exactly. or Thomas. Exactly, just to make it difficult. Just to make it difficult. So Richard Sibbs, The Bruised Reed, a uh, little book, very encouraging, very much drew me back to my dependence upon Christ uh, in all that I do. And so so that would be, if you're going to get the Puritan paperbacks, that would be a good one to start with. Um, but all of them are marvelous. Uh, so let's what, what's interesting about the Puritans is they didn't have to say it. They just did it. Well, there was a certain... It had to do with, with Christianity being assumed. Hmm. And it, this led to problems later, historically. Right. 
but at the time there was such a a religious culture i mean more so this is you know beyond the bible belt mm-hmm. you know there was there was a culture that was it was a persecuted church that had fled persecution and was finding all sorts of uh, of new hope and new awakening and that is where the puritans they come in and they say this is this is what an ordinary means life looks like mm. and we we've lost something of that even today with our gospel centeredness you know how many books now have been written on you know the gospel centered this the christ centered that and i'm all for it there is no there is nothing if there is not christ at the center of it right but it does leave out the 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 praxis the action the obedience that naturally flows from right relationship with god and that's where the puritans are marvelous as long as you don't take them as legalists you and some of them were <laughs> but if you can if you can pull out the obedience as a thankfulness for grace you know these these were the people many of these puritans were the guys writing the confession originally mm-hmm. can i recommend one book just on the thing that you just said yeah uh, of this relating well um, a Christ-centeredness and obedience. Uh, Phil Riken's book on the Ten Commandments ought to be read by everybody. It's called Written in Stone. It's a little volume from Crossway. But I, I find it as that reading of sermons, edited for a book form, but that, that reading of sermons that does an exceptional job uh, in stuff that would be challenging to be Christ-centered. <laughs> um, because, of course, it's far easier to call people to obedience than it is to call them to Jesus. Um Amen. Um, it is an excellent, excellent example of how to do the both of those, uh, and commendable. Written in stone, Phil Riken. Okay. And is City on a Hill here a book for our general category here, Sean? Yes, I think I think City on the Hill would fit into that. Just in terms of a, is it around the ministry, the ordinary means of Phil Riken City on a Hill. Moving on then to books on the sacraments. Mm. What are, this is this is a category that generally the only thing you find out there is systematics, right? Because nobody knows what to do with them, and that, there's a reason they're they're a mystery. <laughs> um, how how is it that my eating a piece of bread, or how is it that my you know that somebody getting water on their head is doing anything? Mm-hmm. Of any lasting value, and yet by faith it is, and so mm-hmm. they they are a mystery. But I I do have I have a handful of books sitting here in front of me, um, mostly on the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there is a great book on baptism, and it's not coming to my mind right now. This is one of those that I've loaned out and I haven't seen for years because I've given it to somebody. And maybe it'll come to your mind, Matt. What's, what's been the most helpful book for you on baptism? Oh, well, you know what? Murray's book. Murray's book is helpful just in terms of an, an argument for uh, covenant baptism. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously we're, we're PCA guys, and so we're, mm-hmm. we're paedo-baptists, uh, which not all of our listeners are. But um, I think that one of the – in terms of the um, spiritual growth of people in – uh, as a baptism is performed, frankly, our larger catechism 
um, it does a really, really great job of telling you, and so does a, the PCA Book of Church Order, and probably any form of government for a Reformed Church, uh, has perhaps the, the most explicit declaration of how that ordinary means is of benefit to um, the congregation. Matt, are you suggesting people read the Book of Church Order devotionally? No, not <laughs> devotionally. <laughs> but in the directions that are given there to the minister, um, there, as he performs a, a baptism service, um, there's much there for uh, people's edification. And sometimes, I think both with the Lord's Supper and with baptism, um, we can sort of hurry through just to get it done without doing it in a way that's very intentional, uh, that people would grasp um, the, the gospel verities that are there. And that's what they're there for. That's why we're there, is for God to speak his gospel to us in a visible way. So Murray's book is entitled Baptism, and then you're recommending the Confessions, the larger catechism particularly, on improving on, our baptism. On improving our baptism, on the on the Lord's Supper, the first book that comes to my mind is Keith Matheson's. Absolutely, uh, it's the title is Given for You, and the subtitle is Let me see if I can reach it here. Subtitle is Reclaiming Calvin's Doctrine of the Lord's Supper, and so this is a uh, this is a very helpful book. Forward is by R. C. Sproul. Uh, if you don't know Keith Matheson, he's, uh, I believe he's employed by Ligonier. I know he'll be teaching at the new Ligonier Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple other books in terms of uh, from, from Dead Guys. As C.S. Lewis puts it, you always have to read old books in addition to reading new books. And uh, he, re- I would recommend a little book by Thomas Doolittle. Thomas Doolittle. It's simply called The Lord's Supper. Uh, published by Solo Deo Gloria. Uh, also a book by John Payne. John Payne is a modern, but he's writing on John Owen on the Lord's Supper. And that is a very helpful summary of Owen's teaching on the Lord's Supper. So those, I think those two would uh, put you in good contact with some of the historical strands of the Lord's Supper. Actually, those three would put you in excellent contact with how the Lord's Supper has been viewed historically and from a Reformed perspective. And then finally, Matthew Henry, who we all know for his commentary, has a little book, uh, I don't know if it was originally published this way, but it's a little book called The Communicant's Companion. And like most of the stuff that Henry does, this is a, uh, it's a very technical, uh, very not technical, but very organized. It's a very outlined book on... Uh, what the Lord's Supper means, and how we can respond to the Lord's Supper. So those I think be, you hit them. Yeah, I, I, I think there may be just one comment. <clears throat> no, I think those are, the, those are the right books. I think that one, um, one comment about given for you is uh, be prepared for your conception of what is going on in the Lord's Supper to be really challenged. Um, I think that, that Lig in recent years, has um, adopted... What's the new phrase that he's adopted that I think is very, very helpful? Um, Maybe he's adopted true presence. Does that sound right, Sean? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Just trying trying to talk about what... How is Jesus there in the Lord's Supper? 
to modern scientific thinking, if someone something is not physically there, it's not actually there. Um, of course, in Roman Catholic theology, um, what's happening at the Lord's Supper is the stuff that's there is changed into Jesus, body and blood. In Lutheran theology, um, Jesus' body and blood, the physical stuff, is is there in, with, and under the elements. Now, historically, in Protestant theology, you've, uh, other than Lutheran, um, you sort of had two things. Um, it's just some stuff there, and it's a neat spiritual experience. That would be more of a memorialist and sort of a crass way of putting it, so forgive me if you're a memorialist. Um and then the Reformed way, typically, flowing out of Calvin, is that there is um, a mystical – this is the right use of the word mystical, by the way – there's a mystical union between the thing and the thing signified. Jesus is there in a distinct way, different uh, than when you read the Bible and pray at home or when we read the Bible and pray in church or even when preaching is going on. There is a ministry of Jesus by the Holy Spirit by which we are joined with him as he is in heaven. There's a really wacky, wonderful, glorious foretaste of heaven going on in the Lord's Supper. Um, and few of us have plumbed the depths of that, and so we don't typically lead the Lord's Supper in a way where we are asking for and expecting communion with Jesus, the risen Lord. Mm. Uh, all that to say, I could have not said that before I read Matheson's book. So if you read, if you just listen to what I said and you just went, that was a mouthful, or that was a head full, or I'd never thought about it that way before. I thought I was just reminding people of truths, which you are. You're reminding mm-hmm. them of truths. But in reminding them of the truths, you're helping them commune with the Jesus who is uh, the truth, who's the person behind the truths. You're helping them delight in Jesus. And that's the design of the supper, is to, to give us a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Sorry. I just waxed eloquent, Sean. <laughs> We're supposed to be just recommending books. Just recommending books. No, we can never do that. Uh, so let's close out. Let's give some books on prayer. Um, this is by no means an afterthought. Uh, no. Prayer is is to be the heart of uh, of any ministry and of any Christian life because prayer at its at its base is this acknowledgement that I can't do it, mm-hmm. and so I need you, God, to do it. Uh, I cry to the Psalms, uh, Psalm fifty seven. I cry to you. I take refuge in you. Why? Because I I can't do it. This world can't protect me. Um, in, in terms of a framework, let me recommend again, in terms of personal use of the means, um, Desiring God, Piper's work on prayer mm-hmm. uh, is very, very helpful. Um, just his chapter on prayer. As well as um, chapels, Praying Backwards, is a, a you useful re- work. Have you read that? Up. I have that on the shelf. I haven't read that yet. Yeah, yeah. Very helpful. Um, just talking about how we have access to God through Jesus, it, basically putting the in Jesus name up front so that we're reminded of the privilege that we have, the standing we have uh, in our justification uh, to come and to pray. Um, one more, praying with your eyes, oh, pray with your eyes open, Pratt. Pratt. Yeah, Pratt's book is a great um, sort of study. It's a, it's a Bible study on prayer. On prayer, but yep. very helpful for sort of opening you up to the diversity of the kinds of praying so that you don't feel bad if one day 
boy, you've got a lot of praise. Or another day, it seems like you're just loaded down with petitions that he kind of opening it up and saying, look, it's a relationship with a person. Um, there's a lot of different ways that relationships happen on different days. There should be a balance, but he it's a very helpful opening up. Yeah. In terms of public prayer, again, dead guys here are typically more helpful. Um, Matthew Henry, um, a method for prayer is useful for having goss, having scripture infused praying in your services. That your prayer and services would, uh, and our my our. Um, the pastor at our church um, and I have been going and talking about our praying in, in our services and to make sure that we're hitting the breadth of um, praying that we're both emphasizing God's transcendence and his imminence in our praying. Um, and the scriptures, by praying the scriptures, you, you do that well. A useful handbook for that um, is uh, Hughes Oliphant Old. Uh, leading in prayer, just as a big, thick workbook um, that's really helpful um, for helping you know how would I even start praying scripturally. Uh, and then also Terry Johnson, which I can't lay my hand on right now. Oh, is it? Do you know the name of Terry's little thin volume, Sean? It's not coming to mind. Uh, let me look at my database here. But also, this would be a useful one in terms of your corporate praying. He'll actually give you some suggested sort of collections of scriptures um, that are really quite helpful um, for beginning to get you in the vein of um, the kind of praying that you might do. It's a little book called Leading in Worship. Oh, oh, that book. I'm sorry. I was thinking yeah. of a particular specific book on prayer. But no, Leading in Worship is great because it's Terry's perspective on that all of worship is is singing the word praying the word preaching the word am i missing one i think there's one i'm missing in there no, i can't i can't think of what it is uh we've got praying, singing preaching reading for reading reading yeah that's the other one the okay yeah. so uh those those books are all helpful for understanding what prayer is, for directing your prayers, for giving you guidelines on how to pray, which oftentimes that's that's what we need. Uh, oftentimes we're looking for a system or or tools or helps, and, and you're going to get the in those. I think there's another aspect to prayer, and that's simply how what can I read that will motivate me to pray? Mm. And for that, it's not just books on prayer – but because we're talking about books on prayer here, I've, I've got uh, four that come to mind. Um, two of which I've read, two of which I haven't, but I need to read and have come highly recommended to me, so I'm going to push them on. One is one I'm reading right now. It's Jerem Barr's The Heart of Prayer. Hmm. And this what, is him recommended to me as well. And what he does in this book is he says, you know, let's just start out with the premise that we all know to be true, none of us pray as we ought. <laughs> now let's look at prayer. And that makes this book, in some ways, much more valuable than all of the systematic theologies on prayer that are telling you all the things you're supposed to be doing, and yet 
leave you weary. I find this with so many books on prayer. You read it and you feel weary at the end because mm-hmm. you know I can never live up to this. Mm-hmm. And Bars starts with the heart and he says, here's, you know, here's who you are. Here is who God is. And let prayer not be something you must do. Again, let's not make it a work. Let's make it an act of dependence. And so I think that's, I think Bars, B-A-R-R-S, Jerem Bars, is very helpful. So that's the heart of prayer. Uh, also, Paul Miller, that I mentioned, has a new book called A Praying Life, which I've not read yet, but I've skimmed through it. It looks very, very good, and it looks very much along the same lines as Barr's book. Okay. Um, no Prayer Shelf is complete without the complete works of E.M. Bounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to have that book. Uh, you can get it free online. Just do a search for E.M. Bounds on prayer. It's I think it's all in the public domain. Mm-hmm. And then a book that has been recommended to me time and time again, and I keep hearing people saying that this book was life-changing, and the funny thing is I have not read it yet, but it's A Call to Spiritual Reformation by D.A. Carson. It's on my table over here to be read soon, and uh, just the quotes that our, um, our, the, our second pastor in our church's title just changed to be Pastor for Equipping and Mission. So used to call him the associate pastor, but I'm, uh, our second pastor uh, has read some quotes from it in our evening services. And it's, it, uh, of what I've heard, it's tremendously good. It's a book that helps us center our priorities in praying from the kinds of things that Paul prayed, which uh, you think would be like a duh, but um, do we pray those kinds of prayers for ourselves, for our people, for our congregations? That kind of idea. Well, Matt, I think we are out of time, so let's uh, let's go ahead and close here, and let's do this. I'm sure we've missed books. I'm sure there are books that have been beneficial to you in these areas that we have not even uh, mentioned, and perhaps you're going to mention them. I would encourage you to go mention them on the blog. Leave a comment on uh, the blog post for this episode, for this podcast, and let us know some of the books that we're missing. Uh, let us know how some of the books we've mentioned have been beneficial to you. And if you need us to repeat any of the books, you can always ask on the blog. We're not, the list was so long today. We're not going to post links to all of these books on the blog post uh, because we've been doing nothing but mentioning books throughout the podcast. Hopefully you can rewind and get out your pencil for the one you, uh, you missed. Uh, but if you missed something and you, you're trying to remember what was that book you mentioned on this, uh, leave us a comment on the blog post and we will happily do the rewinding for you. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, thank you for listening today and thank you for joining us again. And may the Lord richly bless you as you pursue him through his ordinary means. 